0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. It's the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which, according to, well, Rolling Stone, is the single greatest album of all time. And we have a jam packed, star studded show to celebrate that anniversary and discuss that album. We have Rob Sheffield and Andy Green here in the studio. Hey, guys. Hey, Brian. Hey. And calling in right now, we have David Crosby, who got to know the Beatles while he was in The Birds. And ended up spending at least one day in the studio while they recorded *Sgt. Pepper's*. David, what do you remember about that day?
1: I was there uh, several nights. Uh, they they kept inviting me back, so I was <laughs> I was there first. I was there several nights, and the one I remember is is day in the light. Uh, it was a, a, an amazing experience.
0: And. The account I had read Is that they played you A finished version Of Day in the Life Or do you recall Actually watching them Record some of that
1: well, I remember They were doing vocals On something Because uh, I remember There was a vocal booth Set up And I remember Being in it with them uh, So I don't But I don't remember What the vocals were on I, I think they had Just finished Day in the Life One of the nights That I came They had just Finished doing I think their first Rough mix and uh, they played that for me which was a life-changing experience
0: Yeah, you were one of the first human beings on the planet to hear that song so and you had no idea what to expect other than them yeah so yeah and i I think you said you were you were pretty high too (laughs) at the time Uh, yes
1: i was i was herbally enhanced at the time
0: so so there you are herbally enhanced in abbey road uh being one of the first possibly the first outside person to hear this kind of landmark achievement in in all of rock music. So besides being blown away, what, what do you recall of your reaction?
1: Well, it's a consciousness expanding uh, thing to listen to a piece of music like that uh, for the first time because it breaks all kinds of rules. Uh, You're not supposed to uh, jump into another song in the middle uh, for instance, Uh, on it. It's a brilliant piece of music, Uh, two really brilliant pieces of music uh, stuck together in an amazing fashion. Um, And they executed it perfectly, I mean, it's just a a perfect record, there isn't anything you could have done to make it uh, better than it was, it was stunning. What was
0: the atmosphere like in the studio? How, how relaxed versus tense, or what was the feeling of being there?
1: It was relaxed. It was funny. Uh, they were very proud of themselves. They knew what they had done, <laughs> and they knew that it was going to blow my mind round my ear, which it did, absolutely. Uh, and they enjoyed that. They were having fun. This was, a, this was still very happy times for the Beatles. They were, they were rocking.
0: And you had gotten to know them in when they were in California a couple years earlier? Is that what happened?
1: Well, actually, first I got to know them in England when we went over there with the birds the first time. They were very kind to us. It was uh, kind of shocking. We were afraid to meet them, you know, because they were giants and we were little guys. And uh, we met them and they were totally nice to us. They drove us home. They gave us rides. They invited us over for dinner. We became, as we said, herbally enhanced. Uh, we... Uh, we spent uh, some time together, and it was great fun because they are—they were, you know, much more real than we thought. We we were seeing them bigger than life, and the truth is, these were some pretty tough guys who had been through a lot, paid a lot of dues, and worked in some raunchy bars. And they were very real with us. They were very nice to us.
0: Tough guys is really interests me. What what struck you as tough about them?
1: Well. You gotta remember, they had been playing, you know, three sets a night in German bars where they threw bottles at you if they didn't like the music. I mean, it's, it's just, they had paid some dues. Uh, they uh, they had you know done the thing with the you know driving in the van to the gig to play to thirty five people. They'd done that plenty of times, and uh, they were uh, much more real and much funnier and much more human than we thought they were going to be. We thought they were going to be godlike, and they turned out to be real guys and very nice to us.
0: So what is your memory of hearing the complete Sgt. Pepper's as an album? What were the circumstances?
1: Uh, I took the shrink wrap off and put it on a turntable and <laughs> played it. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's quite an experience, I man. They, you know, It's sort of like a concept record, but they stretched the envelope quite a bit uh they didn't stick to sort of a plebeian way to plod through it they they really they really stretched it they really went very far afield uh, this, this is when they were you know they had blossomed as writers on uh, uh, rubber soul and revolver to the point where they they were now just really in full flower as writer and they were they were writing unbelievable stuff you know it was i I loved it I loved every minute of it i I I still listen to it.
0: As a songwriter and recording artist and a contemporary, what in it felt like a challenge or, or a potential influence when you were listening to it?
1: Listening to the writing. The execution was spectacular. You know, their recording techniques and the and the production and the ability to sing incredibly, play r- really well, That that was all a given. The writing was stupendous. They had upped their game writing. When they write about Rubber Soul, they started up their game writing, and then Revolver was a definite up their game. It was much, you know, several leaps higher. And then Sergeant Pepper was just like a a mile further on. They had hit their stride as writers, and they were incredibly good.
0: There were things sonically, obviously, that were very new, uh, including things as simple as the drum sound. Jeff Emmerich was, was miking closely and creating kind of punchier drums, drum sounds than really had practically ever been heard on record. How how much of that stuff was registering with you uh, at the time?
1: We noticed it right away. Drum sounds up till then had been... Uh, you know, stick a mic in the same room with the drums. Uh, <laughs> they had been... Uh, they were all, uh, you know, uh, burdened with a whole lot of room sound. Uh, Emmerich got the actual sound of the drum without the room sound and then modified the sound as, he, as they wished with, the, with reverb or, or echo. Um, but they mic'd the drums correctly in the first place, and, uh, and also they knew how to mix it. They knew the drums had to be bigger, and they had to be better.
0: What else sonically struck you about the record at the time?
1: The guitar sounds. Amazing guitar sounds. the The clarity of the bass track. the The most stunning achievement was that they could do the bounce back and forth necessary to stack those vocals the way they did. Right. With so few tracks, they only. I think they were. They only used an eight track.
0: Might have been four. Was it? it might have been yeah, four. four. So was yeah.
1: Roger Pepper was it four? <laughs> Unbelievable that they could bounce back and forth because you lose a generation every time you do that.
2: Right.
0: And
1: that they got the vocals to stack. and and double as well as they did, and they did it beautifully. To do that under those technical circumstances, I mean, we we sit down with with Pro Tools or Logic and we can, you know, do 30 vocals, it's no problem. There's all this room, and it's easy, and you don't lose a generation. They did it with the most primitive of tools and did the most startlingly beautiful work.
0: One of the things that's hard to kind of convey or understand from the perspective of 2017 was the impact of this album, my understanding is it just hit like an atom bomb. That you heard it everywhere. That every person under thirty, basically in the world, was was listening to this album, talking about this album. That it was being played in its entirety on the radio. Like, what was the the impact like in your perception at that time?
1: I'll tell you the time that it registered most strongly with me. I was on a campus in a college town. It might have been Madison, Wisconsin. It was a town like that. If it wasn't Madison, it was another college town like that. And I'm walking along through what must have been their their fraternity and sorority row or their, their student housing, and it was coming out of every single window. Wow. It was summertime, there were, uh, or springtime, and and it was coming out of every window, everywhere, all the time. Every time you heard music, it was that music. <laughs> it was pretty universal.
0: Besides Day in the Life, what song or songs kind of stand out most to you uh, from that record now?
1: Mm. is it Lucy in the Sky on there? Yes. Yeah, love that.
0: What I about mean, that one? Know,
1: we're, Well, the way the music sounds sort of like things sound to you when you're on acid. (laughs) The Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, LSD. I don't think there's any question what they were talking about. Um, And it was uh, musically delicious. Just absolutely delicious.
0: One of the greatest sort of Time signature back and forths probably in, in in pop music. It, it, there's some, there's something so delightful about that shift in in the chorus, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. That. Yeah, I I think they were very inventive. I, I the overall thing, man, was they had hit their stride. Yeah. They hit that record. They were in full full gear. They knew exactly what they were doing. They had full confidence in themselves. They were writing stick well and they knew it and they had brilliant producer brilliant production brilliant engineers and and they were willing to take the time to do it right and man did they
0: well David thank you so much for for calling in and and talking sergeant peppers with us that was David Crosby the the legendary David Crosby and, and we're so grateful that you took the time to be with us today
1: thank you man it's a pleasure.
0: All right. Hope to hear from you again soon. And this is Rolling Stone Music Now. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper, and we will be back with some more surprises. So we're talking about the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Peppers, and man, we have a lot of surprises in this episode. We have Rob Sheffield here, we have Andy Green here, and also joining us live in the studio right now is Mickey Dollins from the Monkees. How you doing, man? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you very much. Really an honor to be here. We're delighted to have you here. So the Monkees released their own album like a week before (laughs) Sgt. Peppers. Yeah. Which I believe was the second best selling album of
2: 1967. Yes, yes, we got knocked out of number one by Sergeant. What was it called? <laughs> uh, Bilko. No, no. Yeah. Uh, Pepper. That's right. Uh, yeah, great album. I don't know whatever happened to that album. It just sort of disappeared. Like you never, you never know. Right. You never know. And there no, was more we, um, than week. I remember. Right? Yeah.
0: Sorry. I'm just saying. That there was one week in which in which headquarters it was number one, right? Yeah. And then now Kim Sergeant Pepper. Yeah. So you had seven days on top of the world.
2: <laughs> hey, you know that's a great claim to fame. <laughs> Getting knocked out by that happened to me with a single I wrote, Randy Skouskit, uh, yeah. that was released in England, um, and it was uh, kept out of number one by like Strawberry Fields or something. But I don't, I don't mind. You know, that's that's okay. Um, oh, I remember very clearly when it came out. Of course, the buzz was around; it was coming out, and we were filming at Columbia. Ranch uh, filming the television show and we had heard that the uh, the first shipment was coming in uh, of the album to Wallach's Music City which was the big place in LA where you went and bought albums and so we sent a runner down to uh, uh, Wallach's Music City to get one of the first copies off the press and brought it back out to the to the set and we stopped production on the show and gave the album to the sound guy and he put it on a turntable and we we stopped production on the whole show for like an hour whatever it was to listen to sergeant pepper then we all went home suicidal (laughs) 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 and uh yeah it was great but actually my history uh with it goes back before that uh i was in england doing a press junket and and the publicist got Paul and I together for a monkey meets beetle famous kind of press op thing. And he invited me to his house and made a veil. And um, we just the two of us and a couple of, you know, roadies or, you know, friends and and just hanging out, had dinner and then watching television and stuff. And and he invited me uh, to a recording session. Uh, the next day. And um, to, to
0: go back to his a- apartment for a minute, um, David Crosby used the term herbally enhanced to describe his time with the Beatles. The way you told this story before is that you and Paul got incredibly high and watched a basically busted television for three hours. No, it wasn't busted. It
2: wasn't busted. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) We did get incredibly high, but (laughs) it wasn't a busted TV. It was better than that. He had figured out, and I don't know if he'd heard it from somebody, but back then when broadcast television was the only television you can get, it's, it's a technological kind of a geeky thing, but um, when you would turn the channel uh, selector in between channels, you would get snow, mm. is what they called it. Uh, And it was uh, the remnants of this frequency, uh, the bandwidth of this frequency and the bandwidth of this frequency. And you'd get spill. You'd get spillover. Mm. And I had never noticed this before, but if you were incredibly high and you watched this for more than like 80 seconds, you started seeing images coalesce from the snow. And it looked almost metaphysical. It looked like it was some sort of psycho weird that you're getting out of the ether but it wasn't actually I figured out later it was the the spill between the two frequencies and you'd actually get partial images that were like spilling over from the frequencies and we must have sat there and watched it for like (laughs) two hours you know one of those so he he invites me um, and I was of course just stumbling all over myself trying to be so cool (laughs) I had my autograph book in my my back pocket you know and um, he uh, very very graciously invited me down to some sessions they were doing uh didn't say what at the time i don't know how many people knew what was going on and so the next day i i get i tell this story a lot in my show i um uh, got dressed up. I-, I thought, I was expecting, I guess, some kind of psycho jello, fun fest, Beatlemania, freak out, love in, be in thing. And I got dressed up accordingly in my tie-dyed uh, underwear and my paisley bell bottoms and had my hair up in curls and all that shit and beads and, gla- and linen-like glasses, things and so and I was, I don't know what I was expecting, but I looked like a cross between Ronald McDonald and Charlie Manson. <laughs> <laughs> and the princess, Bla- black princess limo, I remember, very clearly picks me up in the middle of the day. This is like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm already four sheets of the wind, you know. Right? And um, that drives me down to Abbey Road Studios. <laughs> and I walk in, and there's nobody there except the four guys. And it looked like my high school gymnasium. Right. It was like, you know, fluorescent lighting. <laughs> and they were in folding chairs with jeans and t shirts, just playing chunk a chunk chunk. And of course, I'm like, where are the
1: girls? <laughs>
2: <laughs> and God, they must have thought I was such an idiot. And John Lennon, I remember very clearly, looks up at me and up on the stairs, and he says, uh, hey, Monkey Man. He <laughs> called me Monkey Man. <laughs> you want to hear what we're working on <laughs> terrible Liverpoolian accent and um i'm trying to be so cool in my best hip y's you know whoa, man farm out man yeah right arm it's cool man yeah what do you let me hear it trying to be so cool and i never forget it he points up to george martin in the booth Uh, And in that studio at Abbey Road, the uh, control room was like another another floor up. And George Martin is wearing a three-piece suit in the middle of the afternoon. Because you had to, I found out. All the technicians and producers had to, you know, be fully dressed. And um, he pushes the button on a four-track tape recorder. And he's in a three-piece suit. I thought that was ironic. And um, I hear the tracks to Good Morning, Good Morning. Mm and um, then we sit down then all of a sudden it's four o'clock and a little guy in a white suit comes in with a tray of tea we sit down at a little tea table card table size thing and we chat about you know and the stuff and the monkeys and what I'm doing you know blah 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 just chatting and I swear like 20 minutes later it was Lynn and he goes right lads down the mines, <laughs> and uh, that was it. Boy, twenty minutes for tea, and then back to work. I hung around for a little while later, and uh, and and listened for a little while. But years later, I looked back and I realized that is how they managed to to produce that incredible wealth of material uh, in a relatively very short time. And then I heard it was John. It was like he's a slave driver. You know, that Northern England uh, working class mentality, you know, down the mines. Here we go. Breaks mm. over. Boom. And go back to work. And um, so I never forgot that. It, the, obviously, the song was burned into my, my brain. And a couple of months later, we were filming the television show one of the last episodes months later maybe well i can't remember exactly the chronology of it but um i, I had written and was directing an episode and it starts out with the four of us uh, in our bedrooms sleeping and uh we had an alarm clock that i'd kind of invented a group goldberg alarm clock thing where then uh, uh i can't remember something would happen in a uh, a needle would come down on a record player and play an album, and I thought, wow, what a great song. Hey, uh, call Paul and ask him <laughs> if I can have the rights to Good Morning, Good Morning for our television show, mm. and I'll be, damn, he, we got it. Mm, mm-hmm. And to my knowledge, it's the first time they had ever, ever, this is 67, right? Say, so, Yeah, 67 or '8. First time they had ever led anything anybody play anything on a TV show or movie or commercial whatever whatever as far as I know and then I went back uh to the big piano chord session the big party session where uh at the end of the uh day in the life yeah yeah the end of uh of day in the life and uh so I was there for that i uh did, did I don't you remember did you that play? so much I'm told I had a great time <laughs> <laughs> do you think you were one of the people
0: hitting the e chord on a piano do you think you you because uh, they had a lot i of don't men. I don't think so
2: I don't remember <laughs> <laughs> I remember sitting. I thought I remember sitting next to to Paul or Ringo or somebody, and just ch- And Harry Nielsen, my friend, uh, my dear friend Harry, was there. And uh, but I remember that. I had the a, a great pleasure of uh, years later. This is uh, decades later. I was asked to uh, go to Fort Worth and sing the opening, uh, the first song, "Day in the Life," uh, uh, with a sixty-piece. Philharmonic Orchestra, because wow. of course they never performed it ever like that, and I did the Lennon part, the, the high part, <laughs> and uh, that was a big thrill. Who <laughs> twenty years ago today? out <laughs> the band, <laughs> and um, boy, I remember that sent chills up my spine. You know, that was amazing. I still do some Beatles songs in my uh, in my show.
0: What do you remember about just this thing impacting the world?
2: Well, I wouldn't have noticed how it impacted <laughs> the rest of the world. I mean, I was pretty uh, s- uh, secluded at the time and, and sort of, uh, what's that word, uh, you know, I didn't get out much <laughs> right. as, I, as I couldn't you know uh, but I can tell you what it meant to me and I mean uh, but all the Beatle albums meant a lot to me I mean I was just a huge fan right from the get go because even before before the monkey show was cast you know um, I was a huge fan I remember sitting in a my car with a, a portable early early portable black and white TV that you plugged into your cigarette lighter and had rabbit ears up on the on the roof of your car and you'd try, you get a signal. And I remember sitting in my local hamburger, American graffiti hamburger, uh, car hop parking lot, watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And, um, and i very clearly remember drive this is 64 or five way before the monkeys uh, 60 when when did they hit uh, the states what year 60, january 64 64, yeah. 64 right so it would have been tr- and i remember beetle day on khj uh, radio and it was huge and uh and i was working a summer job at a supermarket like as a box boy or something <laughs> and I remember driving my little and I was singing I was you know I'd, I'd recorded a little single uh, uh, and uh and I was out singing on open mic nights and this is before the monkey uh audition uh, a year before it would have been or more and I remember driving down Ventura Boulevard going my little vo- Volkswagen bug on my way to the supermarket going boy would I like to be like one of the Beatles one day <laughs> 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 and um so it was huge. All the all the albums, and we just we would sit and just listen for hours and hours. And I had one of the the earliest uh, uh, color uh, uh, light color light things that used to change colors to the music very early early uh, version of that and when you've uh, had a few on then <laughs> you're watching <laughs> that it that, that burns it into your uh, etches it into your memory but to this day you know I still uh, I like I say I do uh, I do songs I was with uh, Paul a couple of years ago he invited me to a rehearsal for ca- uh, ca- uh, Coachella uh, this is before Old Shallow. This is <laughs> about a year or two before that, down in the valley, and uh, he was—he's always been so gracious to me. And um, so I went to rehearsal, just him, and he was asking what I'd been up to, and he'd heard I'd been on Broadway and and done some Broadway musicals, and we got into talking about. Vocals and vocalizing, and I was saying how I had to start training for uh, to, for singing eight shows a week at the, at the palace where I'm going tonight to see to see Bet in, in Hello Dolly, and um, I don't know how we got in the subject. We started talking about vocalizing and singing and and training, and I said, you know, I I still got a D above C. And he says, oh, you could sing, oh, <laughs> And I, I said, I got a confession to make. <laughs> I do.
1: <laughs>
2: I do it in my show, because it's one of my favorite songs ever. And I do it in the original key still. yeah, That's amazing. Yeah, It's it's amazing how fast
0: musicians worked then. And, and we think about yeah. a, a time when y- you musicians you're all over the world in 1967 listening to each other and picking up ideas from each other and competing with each other
2: i'm not sure compete is the right word not and certainly not in our in our case we know i never i never felt that we were in any kind of competition and i i don't know if 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 they would have either you know at you at, at that level at that you know camaraderie it's I don't know I don't know exactly how would you explain it it's all like we're all on the same team yeah and you used to cheer other you know maybe not so much these days you know when you hear but see things going on at the awards you know some of these these disgruntled idiots <laughs> uh, yeah I, I'll only I can describe them but I never felt that back then so certainly it was you were always cheering each other on because very often you're playing on each other's you know each other's records um and uh, very often and now that everybody knows that the wrecking crew was 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 basically playing on everybody's r- record but even the beatles of course had other musicians on their stuff all the time and, and from other groups and you know back and forth and uh, there's a well uh, a song one of my favorite uh, monkey songs written by carol king um uh, as we go along, it's it's from the movie Head, oh, yeah. you know the song. What a yeah, song. wonderful song, Carole King, and um, on that one it's Rye Cooter and uh, Neil Young, and it was it was just so common. I we at RCA Victor you'd go from studio to studio, and there's uh, the Wrecking Crew playing on. On the Beach Boy thing, and then playing on our thing, and playing on Mamas and Papas, and then playing on the Birds, and then playing on the Association, and everybody was so. I, it wasn't so much. I don't remember it anywhere near like being any kind of competition. It was always cheerful, and and you know you'd meet somebody and they'd go, "Whoa, your record went to number five! Great, cool, <laughs> whoa." excellent you know
0: and you guys the monkeys were number one for a week again until yeah. <laughs> sergeant peppers came on mickey Dolan, thank you so much for being here and and talking sergeant peppers with us and now we're going to be joined by today's final guest rick nielsen guitarist for cheap trick who recorded an incredibly faithful live version of sergeant peppers a couple years ago rick what was it like to have to really learn sergeant peppers to learn how to play it
3: well you know um, even though we do cover songs i'm we're not like a you know like a sound effects band or you know <laughs> make exact copies of it so you know i knew sergeant pepper in my head but i'd never put my fingers to frets you know to the to the guitar neck to learn it so i had to i actually had to learn all this stuff you know i knew it note i knew it in my head like i said but i didn't know it to play it so i mean i had to actually do do some uh, do a little uh wood shedding on that stuff uh it was the first time we did it we uh we did two shows at the Hollywood Bowl for nineteen thousand people a night, and you can't go out there and start jamming the solo. You know, like you know, they're, they're, <laughs> nobody booed us, but you know, they, they would have had I not learned my, at least at least my stuff.
0: One thing that I, I wanted to talk about today is just the seeming insanity on some level of the Beatles not putting. Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever on Sergeant Pepper's. As as someone who's made track listings in your time, <laughs> what, what do you make of that decision, Rick?
3: Uh, well, you know, uh, like in our case, uh, they they didn't want to put I Want You to Want Me on our first record. You know, <laughs> you know it's like, and, and so you know, and, but it just happens that way. And you know, when you got a lot of songs, it's like you you got to try to put a, a, a something cohesive together. I mean, when we did the Sgt. Pepper's, you know, we do the whole thing. And it's like it was all right. It was really cool. And then if it ends in day in the life, you know, it's like, well, we'd, what we would do is we went into, um, we did another song. We did golden slumbers, carry that weight. in the end, mm. uh, as an, sort of, uh, to continue it on. And that was cool because, uh, you know, actually, cause we had, uh, we had Jeff Emmerich uh, was our engineer for every show we did. We did all, you know, a hundred shows or whatever. And he was there, every one of them. And, He had said to us, he said, well, look, some of those songs, they'd never played them together. They just, you know, put them, uh, you know, they they were pieced together and all that stuff. And uh, so, well, he said we played it better than they did.
0: Whoa.
3: (laughs) I'm not going to go there, but that's what he said. He said because...
0: Well, you had a lot more practice at it, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. he said the reason behind it, you know, like when they did some of that stuff, he said they weren't even in the studio together anymore because it was like the time when they were breaking up. And they never played the stuff live, and he said, you know like they were bickering and a few things here and there, but you know like when we did it, it' was like it was it was difficult to do, and the stuff that I learned was like you know like certain things in the especially in the sergeant pepper where the uh, the track was lowered and detuned, which is like way ahead of the game mm. like when the the very when it starts out Sgt. pepper da dan and when it very first starts out the guitar well that's the guitars tuned down and then so instead of playing it in a you play it in b and the strings are looser so you know it's like just a little dumb stuff like that that uh that i wouldn't have known because you know i, I knew the stuff but i guess i really didn't know it
0: rick do you think that sergeant pepper has a good case for being the greatest album of all time
3: <laughs> well you're calling a lot of people and talking to a lot of people uh, it's got a it got a pretty good running chance there
0: where would you rank it
3: well, you know, it was, the, the reason it was cool because it was kind of a, a concept album, you know, because to put all those songs together with the, you know, the, how the album cover was with, the, you know, what they were wearing and the, and, the, in the, and the the pictures of, you know, nobody knew what it, what it was. I mean, there was like so much to learn and so much to listen to and gee, what did this mean? What did that mean? How come they did this? And, you know, 50 years later, still asking that kind of questions. Like, it's, uh, you know, nobody you know I don't think any of our records are all <laughs> they wonder what they were doing the first day and that was it you know
0: I think John Lennon himself was one of the first people to point out that the the concept really comes and and then <laughs> goes and then comes back it doesn't really carry through you just sort of imagine that it does which is interesting well, but yeah yeah
3: yeah I mean like when they you know they shot the cover and they got all the you know these uh, satin suits and all this this fancy stuff, it's like, I bet if you would ask them a week later, you want to shoot that one again? No, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it. It was, it was like, it was. the time was right there. Okay, okay, John, a week from now, do you want to wear that suit? I'll never wear that thing again, you know, it's like, I, I can imagine that happening, you know, it wasn't like they wanted to recreate what they already created.
0: What they did do was make sure that every track ran into the next track, and that itself created the sense of, of a cohesive record and of a concept. What do you remember about hearing it for the first time and reacting to stuff like that?
3: Well, I always liked that because again, you know, like uh, except when you're trying to learn a song, when you're putting the the needle on the record and trying to you know figure out the solo or whatever. It like back in the old days, um, but I kind of like that because it's like you know the, the big long pauses. It's like uh, that's like the Yoko Ono, you know, fifteen minutes of silence. Okay, I got it after the first minute, you know. <laughs> and so it, it's like I, I like the stuff running together, and it was cool.
0: Rob, what do you make of the this idea that the concept is, you know, it it comes and goes, but we kind of impose it upon the on the album. This this interesting thing of it really being a, only a semi-concept record. The way it flows together, really, like a show, and and that each so, each song is so different.
3: Yeah, well, we that's what we found too. I mean, when we did it, it's like there'd be certain songs where we'd be jumping around doing this and that, and other ones were like this kind of uh, kind of a uh, Almost like a solo thing, and then we had the we had the uh, the Indian, we had like the, the tablas and 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 uh, Ginger Shankar and, and tablas and all that stuff, and it was like each each one was like a different setting almost. It was like it was pretty interesting.
0: Right, it's not just a different style. Each one is its kind of its own world, it which really you had was. to learn to reproduce <laughs> track by track.
3: Well, yeah, yeah. When I when we were getting ready to do it, we see we were asked originally to do it by the the hollywood bowl uh philharmonic people they came to see us and they said wow you guys would be cool because rick and bunny had played with john lennon and uh we'd work with jordan martin you know they we had enough stuff going there and plus robin could sing everything he could be paul mccartney he could be john or he could be john lennon paul mccartney and and whatever you know like we had we had enough stuff where they asked us to if we would do it and we you know okay <laughs> uh, you know and and before you know it we were you know we were on tour and it's like god we better learn this stuff and, and it it wasn't easy and stuff like that but it was like uh now i don't even remember what what your question was <laughs> no,
0: that's okay rick i always think of cheap trick as in some ways em- embodying the promise of the earlier beatles and and power pop in general the punchy uh, more concise thing that they were doing before they, they got all complex so what what do you think of the argument that something was lost when they moved to sergeant peppers that that they lost the purity of, of the early stuff
3: well you know what they lost um they also gained and but they never lost uh they lost never lost it in their playing maybe for for a record they were you know on to different things and Smoking different things or what you know, whatever was going on. <laughs> so it's like when I say you know, there were probably the uh, even with George. I mean, he's so underrated, it's unbelievable. And it's like with McCartney and Lennon, it was like they were the best songwriters, pretty of all time. Of you know, like of of new and innovative things, and also, gee, you know, they they weren't afraid to show their roots. That you know, they played Long Tall Sally and they, and they played Money, and they did this, that, the other. It was like. You know, they could do it all. What
0: song was the most fun to play? Was was it the the title track?
3: Uh, I think the the Sergeant Pepper Reprieve uh-huh. was the was the one that was you know because it's just it's like heavier. It's the most cheap uh, trick.
0: It's the most cheap trick track yeah. <laughs> for sure.
3: Yeah. Okay. There you go. <laughs>
0: Getting better is and, uh, pretty cheap trick too. That's true. That's true. Getting better uh, sounds like you're playing guitar on it.
3: <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Knew it. So, you yeah. know. Yeah the one that it was uh, kind of the I had the most trouble playing when I'm 64 right not because not because of its difficulty but because of its schmaltziness.
0: right it's the least cheap uh, we could we could rank each song <laughs> by its cheap trickness but so listen Rick thank you so much for calling in and, and talking Sergeant Pappers with us it was an honor to have you
3: yeah you know uh, I've got the I got the uh, the new box too and I was going to put it on Instagram I said the I got the Beatle box, oh boy. I'm such a lucky man, can't, w- can't wait to play. Uh, the gift of Beatles and their songs. Those 50 years flew by, didn't seem that long. 3D cover and Vita for, you know, like, I started writing all this junk down. I was like, what am I doing this for? I'm going to play it on and 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 on.
0: Indeed. <laughs> Rick Nielsen, thanks so much. This has been Rolling Stone Music Now. We were celebrating the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Peppers, and there was so much to talk about. We'll be back next week at 1 p.m. on volume. And in the meantime, download us as a podcast at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to subscribe as well. And we'll see you next week.